last week and try to take it a little further. I, when I was looking at my notes, um, we barely got a little more than one page done out of 11 pages of notes, so we didn't get very far last week. I'm not making any promises this week, but we'll see how it goes and what the Lord allows tonight. Amen. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1. Romans 12 and 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And... Be not conformed. Everyone say, be not conformed. Be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be not conformed. That's what we started talking about last week, and we're going to continue it on this week and uh, most likely for several weeks yet to come because there's a lot to be said about this subject. Be not conformed. Amen. Let's put our Bibles down, lift our voices, lift our hands. Let's talk to the Lord together, everyone. We need the touch of God here tonight. Let's everybody talk to the Lord together. Can we do that? Jesus name in Jesus name in Jesus name praise God praise God amen amen God bless you you may be seated I want to take a few moments to do a uh, brief review of the things that we covered last week and uh, we talked about last week the dilemma that we find ourselves in because of our human condition. We're born into this world with a tendency to sin. It's in our nature. It's who we are. Amen. It's there. It's present. Hallelujah. It's something we need to recognize and realize. It's going to be there until the day that we draw our final breath. Sin will ever be present with us. Amen. Doesn't mean we've got to give in to it. In fact, we shouldn't give in. 
But the fact of the matter is it's there and there's a war going on. We spent some time last week going through some verses in Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul talked about our human nature, our carnal flesh, and the war that is raging between the flesh and the spirit. And we pointed out to you that Paul said that if the flesh wins, it is going to end in death. Amen. And so he wrote to the church and pled with them, literally begging them. This word beseech in our text. I beseech you therefore, brethren. It is a word of pleading. It is a word of imploring. The word literally means to beg. Paul said, I am begging you, my brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I'm begging you, my brothers, that you live a life that is holy so that you can be found acceptable unto God. He went on to say, this is just your reasonable service. As I pointed out to you last week, it's reasonable because the Lord gave his life for us. He died for us, and now he is only asking that we would live for him. Amen. That's reasonable. That's reasonable. And then in verse 2, he told us how we're going to accomplish that goal. How are we going to live a holy life? How can we live a life that will be found acceptable in the sight of God? Paul said, I'll tell you how you're going to do it. Amen. You've got to make up your mind that you will not be conformed to this world. Amen. We talked about the word conformed. It is a compound Greek word. And it, uh, it really means uh, to have an association with or a companionship. Amen. It, uh, it speaks of a resemblance. And then the second half of that word means uh, the external condition or fashion. And so I told you that really we are not at all out of line or taking anything out of context when we say that Paul's command that we be not conformed, what he's telling us is don't bear a resemblance to the external fashion of this world. Don't try to mimic the world. Well, hallelujah. Don't try to be what the world is. Whether we're talking about in our, uh, in, in our uh, dress, in our conversation, in our activities, in our entertainment. I'm telling you that Paul is, is uh, begging the church. Don't try to line up to what this world is. Don't even resemble this world. There needs to be a marked difference. 
There needs to be a clear delineation. There needs to be an absolute line of demarcation. The world needs to know whose side we're on. Well, praise God. There shouldn't be any question about whether we are in the church or in the world. It's not just the world that needs to know. The church needs to know. You know, I've talked to people before and, and, uh, that, that have struggled with various holiness standards. And one of the things I've said to them, I said, look, when, when an evangelist comes by, when a special speaker comes, a preacher comes and fills this pulpit, don't you want him to know that you're a part of the church? You don't want him looking at you and thinking you're a sinner. You want him to know clearly who you are. At least I would. I wouldn't want him coming back and saying, hey, let's go to the altar and repent. Have you ever been baptized in Jesus' name? You ought to receive the Holy Ghost. I want him to know clearly that I'm a part of the church. Well, you know, if I, if, if, if I go into McDonald's and I need help, I don't look for somebody that's, that's dressed just like a customer. I'm looking for somebody that's got the uniform on. If I'm out here and involved in an accident and I, I need help, I'm not looking for somebody that's dressed in street clothes. I'm looking for somebody that's got the uniform on. Well, there needs to be a clear, a clear statement of who you are and who you're serving, and what your position is. Well, praise God. Hallelujah. I'm preaching to us tonight. The apostle Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. Don't bear a resemblance to the external fashions of the world. You need to look like the church. Talk like the church. Act like the church. Walk like the church. Dress like the church. Think like the church. Well, hallelujah. Amen. And then he not only gave us the negative command. Don't be conformed. But he gave us the positive command and said, rather, you need to be transformed. We talked about that. The Greek word is metamorphosis. And it, it involves an, a complete and total change of nature. Any creature that goes through a metamorphosis is no longer the same creature that it used to be. It doesn't live like it used to live. It doesn't function like it used to function. We gave you the example of the tadpole and the frog. A, a, a tadpole and a frog don't even breathe the same substance. Once metamorphosis has taken place, there is such a drastic change in the nature of that creature that it doesn't even breathe the same way. And that's what Paul commanded us as the people of God to do. 
Now, look, I, I, I pointed this out, and I don't want to be redundant tonight, but I want to tell you, I do believe there is just as much danger of saints becoming conformed to the church as there is of us being conformed to the world. We're not to be conformed whether it's to the church or the world. Do you understand what I'm telling you? It's not enough to just dress the part or act the part. There's got to be a genuine transformation. Well, praise God. I don't want to go back and reteach the things that we talked about last week, but just putting some legs on a tadpole and, and uh, uh, cutting his tail off, throwing him up on the ground is not going to make him a frog. He may look like one, but he's going to die. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of people that are dying on church pews because they've taken on the external fashion of the church, but there's never been an internal transformation. Listen to me. If you struggle with holiness standards, there's only one reason for it, and that is you've never been transformed. You don't have to coax a tadpole to get out of the water when the transformation takes place. When he has become a frog, you don't have to beg him. Don't stay under the water too long. Come on now, get out of there. That doesn't happen because his very existence depends on him leaving the environment he was born into. Well, hallelujah. And I'm telling you, if a pastor's got to constantly stay on somebody, you need to change this. You need to fix this. You need to correct this. There's a problem that they have never been transformed. Can I say it this way? They've never received the spirit of holiness. They may be dressing properly. But that doesn't mean they've got a spirit of holiness. A spirit of holiness causes you to want to get out of that water. It, it causes you to want to get out of that environment that you spent so many years in. and You want to get as far away as you can. You, don't, you, you know you can't breathe that stuff anymore because you've been transformed. Well, praise God. Amen. I... I I said it, I said it, but it bears repeating, amen, that, that you, if, if you are ever really transformed, if there's ever really a spirit of holiness that comes on you, then you will not struggle. It is not hard to live for God. It's not hard to live up to the standards of the church. It's not hard. You know, I don't care how proud a guy is of his haircut. If he signs up for the military, he doesn't get much say in that anymore, does he? And he can gripe and he can complain. And he can fuss about it. It's like, you know, way back years ago, they had these pork chop sideburns. And I heard a man say he went into the military and, and said when he got into the barber chair, they asked him, said, do you want to keep your sideburns? He said, oh, yeah. 
So the barber cut them off and put them in a bag for him and handed them to him. You just don't get much say when you're in the military. You're going you're gonna to conform to what they want. But we come into the Lord's army and we think we should be able to tell the general, well, I don't like that. I don't want to look like that. I don't want to dress like that. I don't want to act like that. I'm telling you, listen, listen. And it was, it was under the Old Testament system that it was just a matter of conforming. But now there ought to be a transformation through the power of the Holy Ghost. If you don't want to live like the church, then you've never been transformed. Well, it's the truth. It's the truth. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. There are three principal forces that, that we have to face and we have to deal with on a regular basis. Three principal forces that, that come against us. And, and they are the world, the devil, and the flesh. And I'm going to tell you that last one is the biggest enemy you've got. Now the others are enemies, and they are enemies to be reckoned with. We'll never, we can never downplay the kind of pull the world has. We should never downplay the force of strength the devil can apply. But I'm telling you, the biggest battle you've got is your carnal nature. Because if you, if you can conquer your carnal nature, then the world doesn't pull at you and the devil has no power over you. We'll deal with that more in a few moments, Lord willing. But I'm telling you that these powerful forces will combine together in doing their very best to keep you from living a spiritual life. They will do their best to keep you from living a victorious life. We sang tonight, there's victory in the house. Well, I want to tell you, not everybody in the house has got victory tonight. And the reason some folks don't have victory is because they are battling with the world and the devil and the flesh. Listen to me. The devil dominates this world. In fact, the Bible calls him the God of this world. He dominates the world. And you know what the world does? The world caters to the desires of the flesh. Well, did you follow that? The devil dominates the world and the world caters to the flesh. And that's why it all boils down to you conquering your flesh. I'm telling you the secret of victory is to die out to your carnality. The world has no attraction to those that are dead to sin. Praise God. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Read for me. Shall we say then, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin? How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer live therein? Any longer therein. How can we keep living if we're dead? You know, I, I said it when I taught the lesson on repentance. And, and again, I, I, I hate being redundant. But not everybody is in the adult class on Sunday morning. And, and so there are some things that it's just worth saying again. But I'm telling you, you can take a man who is absolutely addicted to alcohol... A man who feels like he has to have a drink to get started uh, every day. And he's got to have a drink to keep him going through the day. And he's got to have a few drinks to help him sleep at night. But when that man dies, you can bring a six-pack by his casket. And there is no temptation for him. When he's dead, there is no appeal. And I'm telling you, when things still appeal to your flesh, when things continue to be a temptation to your flesh, it's a sign that your flesh is not dead in that area. Well, the reason you continue to feel that temptation is because there's something still alive. That shouldn't be. Well, hallelujah. Galatians chapter 6 verse 14. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world, by is, whom crucified the world is crucified unto me. And I unto, and the world. I unto the world. This, my brothers and sisters, ought to be the goal of every child of God that we could have this testimony that the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. Let them throw out their temptations. Let them parade all of their sinful pleasures. I'm not interested. As far as I'm concerned, this world is dead in my eyes. And there's nothing appealing about death. Well, hallelujah. And I am dead to this world. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this world for just a few moments. I want to define the world for you. When we talk about the world and... The Apostle Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. What is he talking about? Don't be conformed to the world. Well, let's, let's define it. Let me start out by making a statement that I know is, is very obvious to all of you. Satan rules a kingdom that is very much opposed to the kingdom of God. And when we talk about the world... In this sense, be not conformed to the world. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a system that is opposed to everything that is godly. We're not talking about the planet Earth. We're talking about a system. We're talking about a kingdom. We're talking about a force 
that's present with us that is opposed to all that is godly and righteous. And in this world, we are commanded that we not love what's in this world. Read for me 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world. Love not the world. Neither the things that Neither are in the, the world. Neither the things that are in the world. Now listen to what he says. If any man if love the world. If any man love the world. The love of the Father. The love of the Father is, not, is in not in him. Now that's a strong statement. That's a very strong statement. The love of the Father is not in him. Because when we talk about the Father, we know this. God is love. Right? So if God's love is not in us, then where is God? We talked about it on Sunday. The Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So if that love is not there, where's the Holy Ghost? I want you to see the the kind of significance that the apostle John put upon a love for the world. He said, if you love this world and you love the things of this world, then it's time to check your salvation. Because you're missing something. In fact, not just something, you're missing someone. The love of God is not present. Therefore, God himself is not present. Let's go on. What does verse 16 say? He's, he's telling us now why you should not love the world. For all that is in the world. For all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. And the lust of the, the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of and life. And the pride of life. Is not of the is Father. Is not of the Father. But is of the world. But it's of the world. And so I'm telling you, this is the way that John defines the world. When Paul says don't be conformed to the world, John just defined the world for us. The world is made up of the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. That is the world. And that is what we should not, must not be conformed to. Now when we talk about the lust of the flesh, we're talking about the desire of the body to satisfy carnal cravings. By doing things that displease God. The lust, the cravings of the flesh, of the carnality of man. And then the lust of the eyes. We talked about this. The eyes are the gate through which the world is able to appeal to the carnal lusts of our flesh. And we will do an entire lesson just on the significance of the eyes. And I said this, I think, in last week's lesson, but... But uh, the prophet said, mine eye affecteth my heart. What I look at determines what I love. Hello? That's why we need to be careful. We need to be careful when we're just browsing 
through the internet. And when we pull up YouTube, and we're spending hours watching things. I'm telling you, your eye affects your heart. And what you watch affects what you love. And what you love affects what you pursue. And what you pursue affects what you become. Did you get that? What you watch affects what you love. What you love affects what you pursue. And what you pursue affects what you become. Now, I'll add a fourth one to that. What you become affects where you end up in eternity. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. We'll talk about the eyes, as I said. I'm going to do a whole lesson just on that at some point in the future. So we'll, we'll go more in depth about the eyes and the problems that they present for us. And then the third thing is the pride of life. And this, I think, is the most subtle of the three. Because this exalts self. Causes a person to lift himself up in disobedience and rebellion. That's where pride always leads. Did you hear me? Pride is the source of all rebellion. I'm right. I'm right. And that pride is what sows the seeds in our heart for us to become not just disobedient but rebellious. Say, how can you say that? Well, I want to ask you, what was it that started in the heart of Lucifer before he rebelled against God? Where did it all start in Lucifer? I will exalt myself. It all began with pride. In fact, you can read in Ezekiel God begins to tell him, you know, you were beautiful. Your beauty was created in you. And, and talked about the anointed cherub that covereth. And something happened in that angelic being that he became so lifted up in pride. That pride will ultimately lead you to a place that your opinions are more important than God's. That's where pride will take you. Every time. I've had people, I've shown people things in scripture and they've refused to accept what the Bible says. Why? Because they're too proud to admit that they're wrong. And all of a sudden, their opinions become more important than God's opinion. Their word more important than God's word. Now I'm, I'm going to tell you, the devil, the de John said, 
this is all that is in the world. Isn't that what he said? It's still up here. Did you see that? For all. Everyone say all. Everyone say all. For all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's all that's in the world. Everything. Hear me. Everything that the devil throws at you. Everything that the world throws at you, everything that your flesh throws at you is going to fit into one of these three categories. It's one of these three. That's the way it's always been. We can go all the way back to the very beginning. Let me show you uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. Now, now I want you to watch this. In the very beginning, Genesis 3 verse 6, the first temptation of man. Look at what, what happens. And when the woman saw and that when the, the tree woman was what? good, when the woman saw. When the woman what? Saw. When she saw the lust of the eyes. When she saw that the tree was good for food. That it was good for food. The lust of the flesh. And that it was pleasant to pleasant the, to the eyes. eyes. There's the lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired and to make And a one tree wise. to be desired to Make one wise and the pride of life. Do you see this? It was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. The pride of life. And those three things are what caused Eve to yield herself to the temptation of the devil. Now, let's, let's fast forward to the New Testament. Let's look at the temptation of Jesus Christ himself. Let's go to Luke chapter 4, verses 3 through 10. The devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Command the stone that it be made bread. Now, what is that? It's the cravings of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. And right? All right, read. And Jesus answered him, Jesus saying, answered, said, It is written, it's written that man, man shall not shall live not by live bread by alone, alone, but by every word of God. Now, now, look, eating is obviously not a sin, although it can become one. But in this case, Jesus was on a fast, a fast that was directed by the Spirit. And Jesus was living by a principle that he never performed a miracle for his own benefit. Now, I can promise you he was hungry. In fact, I've often said it is the understatement of the Scripture. The Bible says that Jesus fasted for 40 days and afterward, he was and hungered. You talk about an understatement. Most of us, if we go 40 hours, in fact, there's a few that if we go 40 minutes, so the devil comes at Jesus. With the lust of the flesh. And Jesus said no. 
It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And so the devil comes back. Verse 5. And the, and the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms he, of the world. He showed him. He showed him. He specifically put him in a spot where his eyes could peruse the things that are available. He started trying to make Jesus look at things to entice him through his eyes. The lust of the eyes. He showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment, in of, a time. moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is de- for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, and all shall be thine. Huh? And Jesus answered and said Jesus unto him, said, "Get thee behind me, Satan! Behind me, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve." All right. So then we come with a third temptation. Verse nine. And he brought him to Jerusalem, him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle, on of, the temple, pinnacle of the temple said unto him, and said to him, if thou be the son of God, thou be the son of God, cast thyself, cast down, from hence, thyself down from hence, for it is written, for it's written, he shall give his angels, give charge, his angels over thee, charge over thee to, to keep, keep thee. thee. Now, you, you understand what the devil's doing now. He's trying to appeal to the pride of life. If you'll throw yourself off of here, there's going to be an angelic presentation and all of Jerusalem is going to get to witness the fact that you're the son of God. Now, look, understand the subtlety of the devil. Because wouldn't it be a good thing for all of Jerusalem to recognize that Jesus was the son of God? The devil knew that was not going to be the real result. And I'm going to tell you something, church, if you don't know this already, many times the temptations that the devil throws at you, he'll give you a good religious reason for doing what you want to do. That's right. We can go back, we can go back to Lot, and he gets out there and he's looking at the well-watered plains around Sodom, and the Bible says that it, it looked like to him that it was like the Garden of God. Well, this is like moving back to Eden, where God dwelt. And the devil will do his best to convince you that what you're doing is spiritual. It's going to help you. It's going to be beneficial to you in your walk with God. But hear me, the devil will never help you with your walk with God. And you better understand that the temptation that he brings, he's got a motive that is far deeper and far worse than what he's telling you. And Jesus knew the answer, and I didn't give you the verse here, but but Jesus' response to him was, That it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And the reason Jesus used that, what he was saying was that if I throw myself down and then demand that God catch me, I'm tempting God. I am 
I am putting myself in a place where I am demanding that God fix my error. And he said, that's tempting God. Kind of like some young people that um, get alone with the opposite sex. And, you know, before long they're in far deeper than they planned. And, and then they're saying, oh God, help me get me out of this. And look, you put yourself in it. You can't put yourself in a position and expect God to come bail you out of it. That's tempting God. What you need to do is never put yourself in that position in the first place. Now look, I'm not going to throw stones at Joseph. I don't know the whole story. But I can tell you this, if Joseph had never allowed himself to be in that house alone with Potiphar's wife, what happened would have never happened. Now, maybe he didn't know she was in the house. That's why I say I'm not throwing stones. But I'm just telling you, if he would have had a policy that the minute he recognized she's in the house and nobody else is, it's time for me to get out of here. Now, he didn't give in, but he did spend several years in prison. Well... I'm telling you that when we, when we create problems and then expect God to come get us out of them, we're tempting God. And it is the height of arrogance and pride. All right, God, you said you'd supply all my need. So I'm going to go buy this brand new Mercedes Benz that I can't afford and then I'm going to need to make that payment every month. And you said you would meet my need. That's tempting God. That is the pride of life. Jesus rejected the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it is through these same devices that the devil will try to destroy every one of us. And so we've got to be on guard and we've got to recognize if I'm not going to be conformed to this world, I've got to have my, I've, I've got to be sensitive. I've, I've, got to, I've got to be sensitive enough to know I've got to have such a relationship with God that I recognize what's going on, that this is a temptation. Not a blessing. Somebody's walking out of a store and drops a $100 bill. They don't realize that they did. God didn't just bless you. That's not a blessing. That's a temptation. Well... Oh, you'd be surprised how many people, they're in a bind and they have something like that. Oh, thank you, God. You just blessed me. Oh, no, God didn't bless you. No, no, no. 
If God was involved at all, he was testing you. And I'm telling you, the minute you put that thing in your pocket, you failed. Well, I know I just really crushed some of your dreams and hopes. But I'm telling you, we've got to be, we've got to be aware. We've got to be aware. We are not ignorant of the devil's devices. We shouldn't be. Unfortunately, too many people are. And they don't recognize the temptation of the enemy when they see it. <laughs> Saw somebody, somebody, I think today just made a comment and said, said, attention women, if you don't know this already, if you're praying for a husband, God is not going to send you somebody else's. Yeah, have mercy. I, I, I'm telling you, it's, it is crazy. The convoluted thought processes that I've dealt with as a pastor. The people who claim that God blessed them with this or God gave them that. And God wasn't anywhere in it. It was your own carnal nature. You've got to recognize it for what it is and you've got to deal with it accordingly. Listen, the Bible tells us there should not even be any fellowship between light and darkness. There's no connection here. 2 Corinthians 6.14, read it for me. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Yeah, what, what, what fellowship is there? How... How can light and darkness coexist? They don't. Darkness is the absence of light. There is no coexistence. There is no fellowship. There is, there is no yoking together of light and darkness. And yet so many people people who call themselves Christians want to take some dark element of the world and bring it into their life and try to sanctify it try to cleanse it try to, try to make it something righteous and it's not it's not There's got to be a clear line of demarcation between the church and the world. 2 Corinthians 6, we've talked about this, but, but let's, let's read it again. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I, I'm telling you, God makes it very clear, and this is New Testament scripture, but he makes it very clear that if you want to call him your father, you're going to have to separate yourself from the darkness of this world. Don't say he's your father when you're living like the world, acting like the world, doing the things of the world. 
Come out from among them. Be separate. Don't even touch what is unclean. And then I'll receive you. Which again, we're back, talked about last week. The arrogance of saying that we're going to accept Christ. Same thing is true that, that what I hear many of them say is that you need to receive him as your savior. Well, again, it's not about us receiving him. It's about whether or not he will receive us. And he said he will only receive us if we come out from among them. God's plan for his people is that he take them out of the world and take the world out of them. You see, some folks go through the first. They never experience the second. This is when they have conformed but never been transformed. Church, if, if we could ever really understand, and I, I dealt with this a few weeks ago when I, when I dealt with the premier principles of Scripture. The fact of the matter is there is a power in godly living. There is a power in living a separated life from the world. There's a power in that. I'm going to tell you the reason why some people struggle to live for God is because they've never come out from the world. Their feet are still in the quicksand of sin and they're just kicking it around and going deeper and deeper and saying, I don't know why I don't have victory in my life. But I want to tell you, you're never going to have victory until you get out of that stuff. You've got to make a change. You can't keep, you can't live half in the world and half in the church. It doesn't work that way. If you have a divided allegiance, in other words, you're trying to live for God and yet you're hanging on to the world, I'm going to tell you, you are going to live a defeated, unhappy, miserable life. Because you can't serve God and the world. It's impossible. It's impossible. Now, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, I think Brother Hilton may have used this just the other night, but let's, um, if not, you might want to put it in your notes. You just wrote it down. All right, well, let's read it now. Uh, no man that warreth no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this with the, life with the affairs of this life that he may please that he may him please him who hath chosen, who him, had to be chosen him to be a soldier. You hear me? I'm telling you, there's a reason why why uh, soldiers go through boot camp. There's a reason why they put them through times uh, uh, where, where they are separated from others. There's a reason why. Because if you get too entangled in other things, your mind's not going to be on the battlefield. And the minute your mind is not on the war, that's the minute that you become vulnerable. To whatever the enemy may have in store for you. You've got to be alert at all times. You've got to be awake. You've got to have your mind on what's going on. You can't fight a battle 
when you're worried about other things. Well, a divided life cannot continue long. You'll either dedicate yourself to God or you'll turn back. Matthew 6, 24, read. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Can't serve God and mammon is the, the final statement that Jesus makes, and, and that's just a part of the principle he has already established. Now, mammon is, is the God of money, and that's what he's talking about here. You can't serve God and money. But... There's a principle that he establishes before he ever identifies this particular uh, false god. Uh, He says, no man can serve two masters. I don't care who the other master is. I don't care who the other master is. You cannot serve two at one time. You're either going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to hold one and despise the other. But you cannot follow them both at the same time. Especially when these two masters are going different directions. And have two different purposes for your life. Galatians 4 verse 3 talks about what our lives used to be. Galatians 4 and 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage. We were under, in bondage. Under the elements under the of the elements world. Under the elements of the world. And then in verse 9, he says this. Now, after that now, you have known God. After you have known God. Or rather, are known of or God. Or rather, are known of God. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly can you elements. turn again to the weak and beggarly elements. Whereunto you where desire again to be in bondage. you desire again to be in bondage. Right. I, I'm telling you, this is what. Paul's saying how is it that once God has set you free that there's still a desire on your part to go right back into those chains that he took off of you I'm telling you I've seen it and seen it and seen it God delivers people from from nicotine or, or or from different things and then at some point they yield to temptation and they go right back to it then they struggle for months and sometimes years to try to get free. When God had originally delivered them in an instant. Now look, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that's the way it is. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm not going to take the time to go in depth on this. But you know, one thing you might want to consider. When Moses went up on the mountain the first time, God not only gave him the tables of stone, I mean, God carved these tables out. God wrote on them with his finger. God did everything and just handed it to Moses. All Moses had to do was just take them in his arms and carry them back down the mountain. But he got down the mountain and saw what was going on, got mad, threw the tables to the ground and busted them. When he went back up the next time, God didn't carve those tables out. Go home and look it up. God told Moses, you go carve them out. You know, I just have this belief. This is just me. But I have this belief that when we just throw away the deliverance God gives us, then God's going to make us work 
for our deliverance the next time. I've seen it far too often in my many, many years of pastoring. Do you understand what I'm telling you? When you choose, you choose, God comes and breaks the chains off of your life and you just walk back and stick your hands out. Here you go, devil, shackle me again. I'm telling you, if not every time, I can tell you most of the time, God is going to let you break those chains the next time around. That's why you don't ever want to go back and pick them up again. You don't ever want to go back to those things from which God has set you free. I read a story. Uh, it's been quite a while back. Back in, in the days of horse and buggy. and There was a, a drunkard that came to church and got deliverance. And uh, it was an amazing thing that, that, that happened. Uh, he, he, he had been so bound by alcohol, but in an instant he was set free. And yet, that temptation kept pulling at him. And all of his old friends were down at that saloon. And, you know, all the people he used to hang with were down at that saloon. And, and uh, he just kept having a problem. He just kept having a problem. And, and he, he found himself before long, he was really feeling overwhelmed with a desire to go back in that saloon. And he went back and he talked to the pastor and he said, well, why, why is this still pulling at me so hard? And the pastor began to question him and said, look, when you go into town, where are you, where are you tying your horse? He said, well, the same spot I've tied him for years. Where's that? Well, it's that hitching post in front of the saloon. And the preacher looked at him and said, my friend, it's time for you to go find a new hitching post. Quit tying your horse right in front of the thing that keeps pulling at you. The apostle Paul said it this way, make no provision for the flesh. Don't make provision for it. This is what I've, I've never understood. People that struggle with cigarettes, why do you go back and buy them? You struggle with pornography, why do you go to that section of the store? Or the library or the internet? What, if you've got a problem with something, why don't you start tying your horse to a different hitching post? Get away from the things you know you struggle with. Hello? When you know that you've got a weakness in an area, stay away from it. I'm telling you, for some people, it'd be better if they just disconnected their internet. They just stayed off of it altogether. Because they've got such a weakness going to sites they don't need to go to. Looking at things they shouldn't be looking at. And if you cannot control yourself, 
get rid of it. Some of you young people that stay up all night playing games. Best thing you could do would be to get rid of those games. Well, tie your horse to a different hitching post. Not that they're wrong in themselves, but when we get to wasting so much time that we can't be productive in our lives, we can't be productive doing something for God, then, then we've got an issue. I'm just, I'm trying to help us tonight. We have got to make up in our minds that we will not be conformed to this world. We are not going to be conformed to the world. Now, I've got just a few minutes. Let me go just a little bit farther here tonight, and then I'm going to stop. Um, let me, let's, let's, let's deal with something here. Galatians 2.20, we dealt with this last week. Let's look at it again. Very quickly here, Galatians 2 and 20. I'm crucified, I'm crucified with, Christ. with Christ. Nevertheless, Nevertheless I, live, I live, yet not I, yet not I but, but Christ, Christ liveth, in, liveth me. in me. And the life which the life I now, I live, now in live in the flesh, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Yes. Who loved me, me and, and gave himself now, for me. Now, now, we've got to crucify our flesh. And you can't partially crucify it. Did you hear me? You can't partially crucify it. When you go into the Old Testament, the the Amalekites were a type of the flesh. And the prophet Samuel went to King Saul and gave him a commandment. And the commandment was this. Let's read 1 Samuel 15 verses 1 through 3. And Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over this people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek. Now go and smite Amalek. And utterly destroy all that they have. Now hang on. And utterly destroy Amalek. All that they have. And spare them not. And spare them not. Slay both Slay man and both woman. man and woman. Infant, infant and, and suckling. Ox and sheep. Ox and sheep. Camel and, camel and ass. Here's what God said. If it has anything to do with Amalek, get rid of it. Get rid of it. I don't want there to be anything. That's connected to Amalek left. Amalek plays on weakness. Plays on those that are struggling. God, that's the flesh. That's what the flesh does. You've got an area of weakness in your life. That's where the flesh really has its pull. And God said there's only one way to deal with this. You can't just kill a few of them. You got to get rid of all of them. You got to destroy everything connected to Amalek. But you know the story. We won't take the time to read all of it. You you know the story. You know what happened. Saul destroyed most of Amalek, but not 
all. He spared King Agag. He spared the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, fatlings, the lambs. He found what he considered to be good and he refused to destroy it. But everything that he saw to be vile, that he destroyed. Now that's what the Bible says. That's, that's verse number nine in 1 Samuel 15. Verse number nine, everything that was vile and refuse, he, uh, that they, uh, they destroyed utterly. And it's interesting because this again just verifies what I said earlier that when the prophet confronted King Saul over it, do you remember what Saul said? Do you remember what his excuse was? I saved these so I could offer sacrifice. See how the devil says, oh, but look, God wants sacrifices. So I know God said kill them all, but I mean, look, boy, this would make a great sacrifice. And so the devil convinces Saul that there's a real spiritual reason for disobedience. Oh, I've seen it over and over and over. When you start talking to people, why did you do this? Why did you make this decision? And all of a sudden, they've got some scripture that comes to mind, or they've got some, you know, some biblical answer. That's exactly the way the devil works. And he convinced King Saul that it's good to disobey if you're disobeying for God. But what did the prophet tell King Saul? Let's read verse 22. We probably won't read all of this, but but verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of ram. Now wait, wait, wait. Do you understand what the prophet just said? Do you understand what the prophet just said? He said when God is confronted with a choice, as much as he wants sacrifice, as much as he demanded the children of Israel give sacrifice, if the choice is sacrifice or obedience, sacrifice doesn't even come close. As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is what? It's what? It's better than sacrifice. And to hearken is better than the fat of rams. Read. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion. Now wait, 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 wait. And I, I don't want to. Sister Becca or whoever's playing tonight better come quickly to the music to remind me. I got to quit. I don't want to. I don't want to drag all this out. But, but look, I want to. I want to point something out to you. Saul partially obeyed. This was partial obedience. Right? 
I mean, he didn't just totally throw away everything the prophet said. He did go kill most of Amalek. But God saw partial obedience as rebellion. It's quiet now. God saw partial obedience as rebellion. He said rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And and stubbornness and is as And this is the iniquity. real problem, Saul. This is your real problem. You're stubborn. You're stubborn. You want to do things your way. And you don't care that God said to do them a different way. The way you want it done is what's important. You're stubborn. And he said stubbornness is as what? Iniquity and idolatry. Iniquity and idolatry. Do you, do you get this? He's talking to a one God Jew. And he said, your stubbornness is the same as bowing down to a false God. Because you know who that false God was? It was Saul. He was his own God. Right. He made his own rules. He determined his own path and no matter what God said Saul decided I've got good reason for this I've got an explanation for this I've got a purpose for this this makes sense to me right. and it's even spiritual God said you've just become your own God if I'd have wanted you to make Distinctions between what's good and bad and leave some things I'd have told you to do it that way but that's not what I told you Saul and so you don't have the luxury of determining just how far you want to go with your obedience right. do, do you understand that with God it was all or nothing for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry and then he says what because thou hast rejected wait a minute because you've what rejected you've what rejected and wait he obeyed part of it god said just obeying part of it you've really rejected all of it wow. right because you rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected, has rejected you from being king. From being king. This is serious stuff. I'm going to tell you, church, when it comes to the world and the flesh and the devil, we have only one choice. Slay utterly. Don't leave some part still alive. Kill it all. Kill it all. So I've, I've got to close. I'm, I'm over time at this point. But you do know what it was that eventually killed King Saul. 
Do you remember that? I, I don't think I put it in my notes. I probably should have. But when that messenger came to David and said, I just wanted to bring you the news that Saul is dead. And David said, how do you know he's dead? He said, because I came up on him and he was wounded. And he said, don't let me lay here and suffer like this. He said, take my sword and put me out of my misery. He said, so I stood on him and I took his sword and I ended his life. And David looked at him and said, who are you? And he said, I am an Amalekite. If Saul had utterly slain the Amalekites, that young man would not have been around to end Saul's life. You hear me? Listen, church. Listen. What we think sometimes is cruelty and harsh and hard, sometimes God is trying to save us from some future destruction. Sometimes God will institute standards and guidelines and principles in our life that just seem like it's so hard to live by. But you don't know what it is God's trying to spare you from down the road. There's no way that Saul could have imagined that his act of disobedience would eventually bring his own death God you're being too hard God I've got good reason to do what I'm doing I've got a good purpose behind it I've got a spiritual motive behind what I'm doing and yet God was trying to save Saul's life if you'll kill them all Saul they won't be around to put you to death. But Saul thought he knew what was best. And he took matters into his own hands. And he died because of it. Church, I cannot stress to you enough. As we get into in the next weeks, months, standards, guidelines, principles. It's, it's easy sometimes for folks to say that's just too hard, that's just too harsh, that's just, that's just too much. But you don't know what God may be sparing you from. Well, hallelujah. You don't know. But what that Amalekite that you just don't want to kill may be the very one that is intent on killing you. Let's stand tonight. I know we're not shouting and hooping and hollering like we were last Tuesday night, but I want to drive the point home tonight. Be not conformed. There's a reason why 
God wants a clear separation between us and the world because you just can't let Amalek live because he's not going to let you live. It's one or the other. You either kill Amalek or Amalek will kill you. You can't coexist. These altars are open tonight.